would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you can find our passage on page 977 and 978. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. Before I read from Ephesians chapter 4, I'm also going to read to you from Matthew chapter 28. You don't need to turn there. You can, very familiar passage, just listen as I remind you of Jesus' words to his disciples uh, about the commission that he gives to them as he sends them out to be his people. Uh, And then after I read Matthew 28, I'll read Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Paul's words in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for so preserving and protecting it over these many years that we can read it today. Would you teach us wonderful things from this portion of it? Would you open our eyes, open our hearts, take your word and press it deeply into us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I recognize, especially with this time of the year, we have many visitors with us or folks that haven't been with us over the last couple of Sundays. So let me recap uh, for all of us uh, what we've been doing during this month of December. Uh, Our normal bread and butter here at Trinity is to preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we've been this school year been looking at the book of Revelation and we are working our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, Several weeks ago, we took a break from Revelation and uh, began to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 28 that I read to you and uh, this passage in in Ephesians chapter four. These four Sundays before Christmas are traditionally historically referred to as the Sundays of Advent. It's a Latin word that means coming or arrival. 
And it translates the New Testament term that is used to talk about the coming again of Jesus. And historically, God's people during the season of Advent used the time to not only reflect on Jesus' first coming, His first Advent, but they, they used the time during the season of Advent to reflect on how should we get ready for His second Advent, His second coming. We live between the Advents, as it were. We, li- we live between the time that Jesus came the first time that we celebrate for Christmas And we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus and his second advent. And so, how are we to get ready? How are we to prepare? And during these weeks of advent, we've been looking at the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. He he gave us instructions for how to get ready and how to prepare. We refer to it as the Great Commission, a passage that I read from Matthew 28. We looked at the fact that Jesus there gives a command, an imperative for all of his disciples that as we wait for his second coming, the work that we are to be doing, the the preparation that we are to be doing is to be making disciples of all nations, reaching people with the gospel and equipping people with the word of truth. We also looked at the fact that Jesus gave us motivation for why we should do that because he knew even as the disciples in Matthew 28 uh, responded uh, they, uh, we, some doubted it's actually the word for hesitation Jesus knew that as disciples we often will hesitate to, to do the work that we're supposed to be doing as we wait for his second coming and so Jesus motivated his people by reminding them that he goes with them His presence is with us as we go to make disciples. And not only His presence, but His power, His authority. The authority of Jesus is with us as we go out to make disciples of the nations. On the first Sunday of Advent this year, we looked at the Great Commission itself. And we looked at that command to make disciples of the nations. On the second Sunday of Advent, we began to look at this Ephesians 4 passage that we read again this morning. And we look at this picture that Paul gives us of of what it looks like to be making disciples. Uh, Paul gives instructions to this church in Ephesus and the instructions he's giving to them here in these verses are a picture of what it means and what it looks like for God's people to go out and to make disciples of the nations. And on that second Sunday of Advent, as we begin to look here at Ephesians 4, we saw this kind of threefold picture that Paul gives us. What does it look like to make disciples? It means that we, as God's people, and the people that we would be going out to make disciples of the Lord, would be growing in our knowledge and in our love for the Lord. That we would be growing not only in our knowledge and our love for the Lord, but also our knowledge and our love for others. And that we'd be also growing in our ability and our motivation to serve in the kingdom of God. That second Sunday of Advent, we looked in particular at the first part of that picture that Paul gives us. What it means to be growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord. Last Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, we looked at the second part of this picture that Paul gives us. Of what it means to make disciples who are growing in their knowledge and love for others. And so today, I want us to look at that third part of Paul's picture here in these verses. Yes, we ought to be growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord vertically. That then compels us, it propels us out to be growing in our knowledge and love for others. 
But we also, as disciples, are to be growing in our motivation and ability to serve the Lord in His kingdom. That's true for us. We are disciples. We should be growing in our ability and our desire to serve the Lord. But it also is what it looks like for us to be making disciples, that they would be growing in their service to the Lord as well. So today we're going to look very simply at what Paul says here in these verses about the role of service for the leaders in the church and then the role of service for all the saints. And then we'll finish by looking to see what difference that makes for us today. So first of all, what does Paul say here about the service for the leaders of the church? Well, if you look back in verse 11, you can see that Paul tells us that Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is one list among many in the Bible of names or descriptors of various leaders in the church. Uh, So this is an incomplete list. It's not meant to be a total list of every kind of leader that there is in the church. If we put all the lists in the Bible together of leaders, there's probably about 20 different kinds of leaders that are mentioned. So this is just a partial list. And what Paul is saying to us here is he's talking about the leaders of the church that Jesus has raised up and given leaders to the church. And notice he says that the role is not for their own benefit. They are to be, these these people that he's mentioning in verse 11, the leaders are to equip the saints. Now, who is that? Who are the saints? It's actually a very familiar term that's used in the Bible. It's used in the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's frequently used in the Psalms. It's often used by Paul and John. The word saints literally means ones who are called out, those who are set apart, those who are devoted and sacred and holy. In the Old Testament, it's often used about places. And when it's used about a place in the Old Testament, it almost always refers to the temple or the tabernacle or the sanctuary. That place where God would come and meet with his people. It was a set apart place. It was a sacred place where God would meet with his people. But that term is also used about people, not just places. And when the term saints is used... About people, it is used to refer to God's people, Christians, those who follow Jesus, his disciples. So you see what Paul's saying here. The job of the leaders of the church is to help the saints. It's to help God's people. And notice he also tells them it's to help God's people to do what? He says that the, in verse 12, they are to be, these leaders are to be equipping the saints For the work of ministry. What does it mean to equip someone? This little Greek word equip literally means to make someone completely adequate for a task. It means to cause someone to be fully ready and qualified for something that they're going to be asked to do. It means to make them complete. It has the sense of teaching and training and modeling and enabling and empowering and preparing. And God's leaders of God's church are to be doing that. They are to be equipping the saints to do what? What does Paul say? So that they can do the work of ministry. 
The word ministry there is the word diakonos. It's the same word where we get our word deacon from. And it can mean the, the official office of deacon. Those who have been set apart to be a servant uh, as a deacon in the church. But it also has just a more general term, uh, a general sense of just meaning service. That, that, that is used for everybody. So here is Paul's point. God raises up and appoints leaders for his church. And they are to serve the church by equipping and training and preparing and empowering God's people, the saints, so that they can go out and do the work of service, the work of ministry. That's the job of the leaders for the church. It's one of the primary ways that leaders are to serve in the church. Paul also has something to say here about the saints, what they're to be doing. Verse 12, these leaders are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints, the saints are supposed to be serving by doing the work of ministry. Now, which saints Surely what Paul's talking about here are the saints who have been professionally trained in seminary, in Bible college. Uh, surely the saints that he's talking about here that are to be doing the work of ministry are the ones who are particularly good at doing various tasks in the church. No, what does he say here? He says that it's the saints and actually, if you just go back to the beginning of chapter 4, we'll get a little bit more of the context. You'll see it more clearly. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given just to the ones that were really supposed to be serving in the church. No, what does Paul say? Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus has given his gifts. He's given his grace to all of his people. Again, in verse 12, you are to equip the saints, not the ones that you think will be the most effective in serving the church, not the ones that you feel are already gifted in various ways, not the ones that you like better. You are to equip all of the saints. And you can see it again at the end of verse 16. We talked about this last week. This, this image that Paul uses here and in other places about the body of Christ. That all of God's people is actually being... He uses this, this metaphor, this analogy of the body. Body parts. And he talks from whom the whole body, in verse 16, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The whole body, every joint, each part working properly. If you're a Christian, then you're a saint. And if you're a saint, then you are called to be serving. 
If you would flip with me to just a couple books to the left, if you still have your Bibles open to Ephesians 4, just go left a couple books to the end of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is another letter written to a different church by the same person, by Paul. And he uses very similar language to talk about uh, the saints, to talk about God's people, using this, this image of the body and various body parts. And listen, listen to the sense of, of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All of God's saints are to be serving in the work of ministry. And notice Paul also talks here in First Corinthians, we'll stay here just for a moment, to talk about with what we are to serve. With what we are to serve as the Lord. If you look again at First Corinthians 12, he uses this uh, language of the body parts. And he, he talks here about uh, the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes. And he's referencing all of these different kinds of people and all of these different kinds of abilities and purposes and gifts. Saints are gifted differently and uniquely, but they're all for the same goal, that they would serve in the Lord in the work of ministry. You might be a foot, you might be a hand, you might be an ear, you might be an eye, but you're a saint. And if you're a saint, you have been given the privilege of serving in the ministry of God. And he gives you all kinds of different gifts. They're all needed. They're all necessary. And I want you to also notice that Paul says who you're supposed to be using those gifts for. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And you can be reminded there at verse 12. He says that the leaders of the church in verse 11 are to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up their own reputation. The, the, the leaders of the church are to equip the saints so the saints will go out and do the work of ministry so that their name will be great before men. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that the leaders of the church are to equip the saints so that they will go out and do the work of ministry for the building up, not of themselves, but for the body of Christ, for the church, for others. And you can see it in verse 16 as well, where he talks about how these various parts of the body, the joints that are being held together, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. The saints who have been equipped by the leaders of the church are supposed to use their time and their treasures and their talents to serve the body, to serve others. Not for building up themselves, not for their own gratification, not for their own satisfaction, but for the body, for others. So let's stop for a moment and let's reflect on what Paul has been saying. Part of what making disciples means for ourselves as we are disciples, but also for those that we would be making to be disciples, part of what that looks like is that we would be growing in our motivation, in our ability to serve in the kingdom of God. Paul says that Jesus calls and raises up leaders for the church who serve the church by equipping the saints, the saints God's people are to go out and they are to serve the Lord by doing the work of ministry. All of God's people, all of God's saints are to be equipped. And all of God's people are given gifts with which to serve. Different gifts, unique gifts, not necessarily equally given. But all for the purpose of serving the Lord and building up the body of Christ. For His glory, for the glory of His name. In the building up of his church. Now when all of this is happening the way that it's supposed to be happening. Then what we have is a symphony of God's grace and mercy. It's, it's a wonderful symphonic masterpiece of God's grace and God's goodness being displayed in the church to the world. It is often said that preachers only have a couple good illustrations. Now, I hope that that's not actually true, but it certainly is the case we have some of our favorites. And sometimes they show up more regularly in sermons. And I used this particular illustration about a year ago, but it's one that I feel gives us such a wonderful picture of what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the illustration of the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. Mr. Holland's Opus. Now that's not a word that we use very often anymore. Opus. Uh, it literally means an artistic work. Especially something that is an artistic work on a l- large, massive scale. And this movie that came out in 1995 starring Richard Dreyfus tells the story of a man named Glenn Holland. Holland was a very talented musician. He was somewhat successful as a musical performer, but but what he really wanted notoriety for, what he really wanted to be known for, was to be a famous composer. And so at the age of 30, he decided to slow down his life a little bit so that he could have more time to work on composing what he believed would be his masterpiece. He took a teaching position at a local high school teaching music to high school students. The movie shows Mr. Holland's life despite his efforts on composing this wonderful opus, this wonderful masterpiece. He wasn't able to create it as he had hoped. He struggled to get it out and to to write an opus that would make him famous. And instead, what the movie shows is he ended up spending years and years investing his life 
in the students that he taught in the high school, pouring himself into them in various ways. There was one young girl who struggled to play the clarinet and he helped her to learn how to play the clarinet well. There was a football player who didn't have very good rhythm, but he had to have the band class in order to be eligible to to play football. There was a kid who grew up living on the street who was mad at the world. Mr. Holland poured himself into that young man and helped him discover the beauty in the world through music. As the movie begins to come to its conclusion, the school board uh, for the area there were dealing with budget cuts. And so they decided that they were going to eliminate the music program at the high school where Mr. Holland was teaching. Despite the efforts of Mr. Holland and, and many others to try to get them to change their mind, the music program was removed and Mr. Holland was forced into early retirement. As the movie culminates, he reflects on the fact that although he was able to write his symphony, no one that he could find was willing to perform it. So he felt dejected. He felt like a failure. He felt useless. On the last day of school, he was cleaning out his desk for the last time and began to walk out of the school. And as he walked down the hallway, he passed the auditorium of the school and he heard commotion going on inside. And so he put his box of his belongings down and he went to investigate and he opened the doors of the auditorium. And as he opened the doors of the auditorium, there was a room filled with students, his students from the past, alumni and his current students were all in the room. And as he walked in, they began chanting his name and applauding. Then he looked up at the podium at the front of the room and he saw the little girl that he had taught to play the clarinet standing there. No longer a little girl. She actually had become the governor of the state. She addressed Holland. We know that you never became the famous composer that you dreamed of being. But can you see it today? Your great composition is what you did with your students. Mr. Holland, look around you. We are your great opus. We are the music of your life. And at that, the alumni and the students took up their instruments. After they had learned Mr. Holland's symphony, and someone handed him a baton, and he led his past and his present students in playing his symphony. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a wonderful picture it is. We, as God's people, as His saints, are Jesus' symphony. We are His masterpiece. We are His opus. He created us. He has loved us from before the foundation of the world. He came into this world as our Emmanuel to redeem us from the curse of the law. He has adopted us into His family, uniting us to Himself and to one another. And He has put us into fellowship with each other. He has put us into a family of believers together. And He equips us with gifts that we might serve Him and serve one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are sitting in the midst of Christ's wonderful musical. His spiritual opus, His church. And the beauty of it is, 
You and I, every single one of us, are given a part to play in this incredible symphony. It may be a big part, or it may be a little part. It may be a solo, or it may be part of the chorus. It may be up front, it may be behind the scenes. We may not become great before men, but if we use what God has given us to bring Him glory and to build up one another, then we are serving Him faithfully. So let me finish by just thinking about some application here for us as we leave today. First of all, let me speak to the leaders of our church. And here I'm thinking particularly of our elders and our deacons, our Bible study leaders, our small group leaders, our Sunday school teachers. How are you doing in the work of equipping the saints? That's the work that God has given to us as leaders in the church. We are to be equipping the saints so that the saints can go out and do the work of ministry. As I was thinking about this in particular for our elders and our deacons, I was trying to think what would be one very practical application that we could walk away with for our elders and deacons for how they might be equipping the saints One way that our elders and deacons could put this into practice is what if each of our elders and deacons came alongside of another man in our church who they think might one day be an officer, an elder or deacon in our church. Maybe get together monthly with them, invest in them, train them, model for them, prepare them, equip them for the work that you know something about. How about our Bible study teachers? Our small group leaders, our Sunday school teachers. Do you do you think about the fact every single time that you walk into the room that God has given to you his word and you are using it to equip those that are in the room to study with you? Regardless of whether they are the youngest of our children or an adult. Do you reflect on the fact that the material you will cover could be used to equip the people So they are ready to go out and do the work of ministry. If you're a leader in this church, then you should always be thinking about how you are equipping the saints of our church family. But how about for all of us? Because Paul talks about the fact that all of us are saints. And as saints, we are to be doing the work of ministry. So how about for us? And I want to think about it here in two ways. First of all, That you ought to be serving in the work of ministry in your vocations. Now what I mean by vocation is your primary occupation, your career, what you do to earn a living. Whatever vocation you have is the place where God has put you to serve Him faithfully. It could be that you work at Mayo or IBM. It could be that you serve in the fields. It could be that you are working at Schaefer Academy or in the public school system. You might be a student. You might be a law enforcement officer. You might work at Labrie. You might work in your home. But wherever God has given you a vocation to serve Him, it has dignity and importance because He's called you to that place. One way that you serve the Lord in His kingdom is by being faithful, being a good worker, In whatever vocation he's given for you. In one sense, your vocation is the ministry where you serve. But I want you to think not only in your vocation and how you serve faithfully in that place, but also in ways that you volunteer. God's people ought to be using their time, 
their treasures, their talents to serve the Lord in volunteering both inside and outside of the church. It may not be doing something that you want to do. It may not be something that you feel particularly good at. It may not even be something that you feel like you get lots of affirmation as a result of doing it. But being willing to serve where there are needs. I was reflecting on that just within our church, first of all, before we think about outside of our church, within the church. What are some ways that you could serve within our church? We always, always have need for volunteers to serve in the nursery. There may not be any more significant service than ministering to the very youngest covenant blessings of our church family. You could also volunteer to help out with the high school and middle school group. You could volunteer to be a helper with our greeting ministry or ushering. You could volunteer to help with something that you don't ever think about when you come to church and yet you all participate in. Preparing the Lord's Supper. Or helping with the sound table in the back. You could get involved with our Crow Creek ministry. All kinds of different ways to serve within our church. I had someone contact me recently within our church family. And this person was wondering, uh, because of their own background and, and experience and some skills that they had, they wondered if there was any need uh, to, to help me and the church a little bit with some of our small group ministry. What an encouraging email that was. It wasn't saying, this is the way that I'm going to serve. It was asking a question. I have this experience. I have this. Uh, I have. I have these certain skills. Is there a need here that I might be able to plug in? Tell me how I can be helpful and to serve the church. Not just within our church, but also outside of our church. You ought to be thinking about ways that you might volunteer with a local ministry or a mercy organization. I think of things like New Life Family Services, Together for Good, Family Promise, or Next Chapter. All ministries which are always looking for people to volunteer to serve in the work of ministry or maybe even volunteering in the public school system. God's people ought to be looking and asking, where is there a need where I might be able to plug in and to serve? Not being so concerned about whether they feel it's the best thing for them or the thing that they want to do. Let me finish today by giving just a quick summary of all that we've been discussing over these past four weeks of Advent. We are God's people. And as God's people, we're waiting. We're waiting for the arrival of the Lord Jesus. He came the first time and accomplished the work that He came to do, the work of the cross. He was resurrected from the grave. And as a result, He's coming again, we are told in the Bible. And now as God's people, we wait. We wait for His second coming. And as we reflect on all that He accomplished in His first coming... And as we wait for his second advent, we remember that Jesus gave us a commission. He gave us a job to do. He told us to go make disciples of the nations. And Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like here in Ephesians 4. That we as disciples ourselves and with those that we would make as disciples, we ought to be growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord which then moves us and propels us to grow in our love for others. And we also ought to be growing in our motivation and ability to serve in the kingdom of God 
for God's glory and for the good of his people, that the leaders of the church would serve by equipping the saints for the work of ministry and that all of God's people, the saints, would serve by doing the work of ministry for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that we orient our lives around the commission that Jesus has given to us to make disciples of the nation, the more that we would orient our hearts and our lives and our minds around the goal of growing in our knowledge and love for the Lord and for others and in our service to the Lord, then the more that we will glorify the Lord and enjoy Him and see His church and His kingdom grow and expand as we wait for His second advent. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the fact that in your word you give us this incredible commission. And we thank you that you don't just tell us what to do, but you show us what it looks like. And I pray that as we meditate on these things as a church and as individuals, that you would use your word and through the work of your spirit to prick our hearts, to prick our consciences. That we would have burdened hearts to see the nations be discipled. To see people come into your churches. That they would be equipped. That they might do the work of ministry. That your church and your kingdom would grow and be built. And that your name would receive ever great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a record of what happened as Jesus gathered his disciples together to eat a meal together as he was preparing to go to the cross. And Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that we read that passage uh, regularly at Trinity. And we usually include this next verse, but how often it just kind of skips over our minds. Jesus finished what he was saying to them by saying this. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus finishes his instructions about the Lord's Supper to his disciples by giving them a promise. God's people throughout history have had a promise. In the Old Testament, the people of God had a promise that the Messiah would come. He would come for the first time, the first advent. And now Jesus is gathered with his disciples. He had come and he had almost finished and completed the work that he had come to do of redemption, of paying for the sins of his people. Of, of earning the righteousness that would be credited to their accounts. And so now, the first promise had been fulfilled. And so he gives them another promise. A promise that the first advent would lead to a second one. That he would come again. And that one day he would 
eat and drink the Lord's Supper together with them face to face. And every time we come to this table, we remind ourselves of that promise. That the work of redemption that He came to do has been completed. And now, as God's people, we're waiting. We're waiting for the consummation of all things. And so each time we come to this table, we once again commit ourselves to our Savior and to His commission that we would be His disciples. But it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for someone to partake in the Lord's Supper if they didn't actually believe the promise or the one who made the promise. So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're not someone who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not someone who has a relationship with Jesus, trusting in Him alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're someone who hasn't publicly declared that faith at a church and connected yourself with a body of believers, whether it's Trinity or another church that believes the Word of God is true and that the Gospel is by grace in Christ alone, then as the elements come around to you, allow them to pass by. Don't eat and drink, but instead use the time to ask the Lord to reveal Himself and to show Himself to you what His first advent really means and what He accomplished and the promise of His second coming. But if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Christ and you're trusting in Christ alone and you've made a public declaration of that faith, then as the elements come around, eat and drink and be reminded of the Lord's body given for you and His blood shed for you. And also be encouraged that as we come in faith, believing in faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit's at work strengthening us, nourishing us spiritually so that as we go out this week, we can truly be His disciples, faithfully serving Him. Let's pause and let's thank Him for giving us uh, the Lord's Supper. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for this means of grace, this Lord's Supper. We thank You for what it means and what it points us to. We thank You for how You're at work through it by Your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to You in faith, we, we need our faith strengthened and so we pray you would strengthen us and we pray that you would encourage us. Encourage us with the truth of the gospel. Encourage us with the truth of the promise that the first advent will lead to the second. And as we wait, give us the faith and the strength that we need so that we might faithfully serve you as your beloved people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.